I'll turn it over to our speakers and our moderator. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, and thank you for joining us on this glorious uh, sunny day for, um, for your lunch break. Um, we really appreciate it and we look forward to the discussion that we're going to have. Um, so as you know, this panel is focused on best practices for selecting and working with expert witnesses. Um, in particular, in IP cases, expert witnesses are critical. Um, as many of you may know, they can make the difference between winning or losing a case. Um, and the quality of expert testimony is not just outcome determinative, but it can really shape um, the landscape of the litigation from the inception. Um, one of the best aspects of my practice is working with esteemed experts all over the world um, and helping them develop their testimony to present understandable um, explanations of technical issues to the judge and the jury. Um, and it's probably the best, best part of being a, a patent litigator. Um, and I have the benefit of working with two of our esteemed experts who are here today as our panelists, which I'll introduce um, briefly. So um, we have Dr. Sally Woodhouse, um, who leads Cornerstone's Life Sciences Practice. She's a vice president there. Um, Dr. Woodhouse um, provides uh, economic consulting in a host of areas, um, including intellectual property. Um, and um, her primary area of focus is in the pharmaceutical space. Um, and she has been involved in a number of litigations involving a host of different issues uh, related to IP in the pharmaceutical context, including antitrust and patents and damages and the like. Um, and she's gonna share with us some of those experiences today. Um, I also have with us, um, Professor Mansour Amiji, who is a, a university distinguished professor at Northeastern University. Uh, professor Amiji um, is an experienced expert witness who has testified a number of times in patent litigations. Um, his area of focus um, is in polymeric biomaterials um, and the preparation of membranes and microcapsules um, and other pharmaceutical applications um, relating to the use of drug delivery systems and um, nanomedical technologies um, for the delivery of drugs. Um, hopefully I, I did both of you justice with, with my, uh, my, my introductions, but thank you both for, for agreeing to participate and being present today. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, pleasure to be here and uh, certainly uh, delighted to, to, to speak about some of my experiences as an expert witness. Me as well. Thank you, Nick. So um, we're going to dig into the, the first sort of issue here. What I'd like to do is have um, both Dr. Woodhouse and Professor Amiji do a little bit of, um, give a little bit of background on some of the experience they've had at a very high level um, in, uh, as with or serving as an expert in patent litigations or IP litigation. So Professor Amiji, you want to start? Sure. Um, so um, I am, a, as Nick mentioned in, in the introduction, I'm a, a drug formulator. I work uh, on uh, various types of cases that are specifically geared towards pharmaceutical products. Uh, and in my uh, time that I've been involved, about a period of approximately 15 years or so, over 30 cases uh, where I have served uh, as an expert witness, uh, and then I've been involved in depositions, maybe around 15, 18 depositions, as well as about six trials. Um, majority of those cases that I've been involved in are the uh, Haxman-Watch cases, which uh, typically involve uh, the plaintiffs uh, who are the uh, brand name drug company and the defendants would be either a, a generic company or a multitude of generic companies trying to develop these products. So 80% of my cases, it tends to be these uh, Haxman Wedge cases. And then the uh, major area of uh, this, uh, in, in that uh, particular litigation is either uh, resides in terms of infringement analysis or non-infringement analysis, depending on which party I'm serving for, uh, or validity or invalidity of the patents. Great. Um, and what about you, Dr. Woodhouse? Sure. So my expertise is very different. I'm an, an economist. Uh, so I uh, consult on the economic issues that come up in um, that come up in patent litigation and various other types of litigation. 
I'm not actually a testifier myself. I support testifiers and I consult, I'm a consulting expert uh, to attorneys in these litigations. Um, so oftentimes there's pretty complex um, economic analyses required. Um, so I will help uh, counsel for, you know, counsel identify the relevant testifying um, expert and then support that expert in conducting those analyses so the expert can render an opinion. Um, I work across a, a, a large number of different types of cases within the life sciences field. So as, as Nick mentioned, certainly um, IP cases, but also antitrust, product misrepresentation and false claims act cases and the like. Uh, within IP, um, a lot of my work is in the Hatch-Waxman context. Um, so for example, um, supported a number of experts in their evaluation of commercial success and nexus issues. Um, also in the context um, of uh, preliminary injunction requests, evaluating irreparable harm issues. Um, and then outside of Hatch-Waxman or Hatch-Waxman, but other um, types of patent cases, including sort of biologic biosimilar cases and brand um, brand IP cases have evaluated damages. Great. Um, so with that, I want to turn to the first topic, which is selecting expert witnesses. Um, as you both know, um, you know, given my practice as a partner at, at Goodwin um, in patent litigation and the life sciences space, I've been heavily involved in identifying expert witnesses um, for litigation. Um, and we've used a whole host of different methods to do so, including, you know, um, both our own independent research, prior experience, as well as, you know, in some cases when um, it's sort of a, a field where there are fewer experts um, available to identify using potentially a search firm to assist. Um, and I want to sort of touch base on sort of these different ways of selecting expert witnesses um, and um, sort of what you've seen um, work successfully in the past. Um, why don't we start, Dr. Woodhouse, with you on sort of from your perspective in helping identify, let's say, um, an economist who is going to testify, you know, and who you're going to work with to prepare their testi testimony for a case. How do you go about identifying the right um, expert? Sure. So um, uh, uh, this is actually a big role we can play for our clients is helping them identify the right expert. Um, we have a large number of experts in our network. So we have some, there are people internal to Cornerstone who testify, um, but we also work with a large number of academics, um, you know, economists, the top academic institutions um, who do testifying on the side. Uh, they have, they have their main job, um, but um, if the right case comes along where they feel like they can, um, you know, offer um, assistance to the court, they're, they're often happy to um, participate. So, you know, certainly I, I found without clients, a big consideration is just prior testifying experience. It provides can provide a lot of comfort to know that an expert has already been through deposition and and trial and is tried and tested and understands sort of what that involves, what the commitment is, um, you know, and, and sort of just how the whole process works, what an expert report looks like, um, what it means to prepare for a deposition, what types of questions they can get. Um, but there, there can be trade-offs, right? You can have very experienced, savvy experts, but um, maybe their research isn't directly on point um, and you may be willing to take a less experienced expert if you can get really the someone who has the background that exactly fits the scope of um, expertise that you're looking for. The other thing is sometimes experts who are very experienced, um, they can take on too much or they can be very busy both with their expert work and with other things and it can be harder to schedule around them. Maybe they're not as responsive or not as engaged and newer experts can be really engaged and um, uh, really digging into the to, to the case and um, and providing quick feedback and uh, you know not missing any deadlines or anything like that um, so uh, I think that there, there can be a lot of trade-offs other other considerations that um, can matter are things like location maybe you want someone with a southern accent depending on whether you know, whether, whether, um, whether the case is, is being tried, billing rates can matter, the strength of the academic institution, all these different considerations can matter when you're thinking about what expert you're going to select. And it can depend on how likely you 
think the case is to go to trial, um, you know, just a, a lot of uh, different factors. But, but one thing I would really encourage people to do is to be open to newer experts. Um, uh, if, if there's someone like me from a consulting firm who's telling you, you should at least talk to this person, at least get them on a video conference and talk to them it's probably worth your while to do it. I don't do that for every new expert, but we do, we go out and we, um, you know, we go to conferences, we hear how people present um, and we get a really, and we talk to people and we get a really good sense of just how successful they're gonna be as an expert, even before they've ever been deposed. And I think just taking the time, if we're telling you it's gonna be worth your time to meet with an expert, to just do that. Maybe you're not gonna hire them for a bet the company case, but um, but most expert role, most, I think there's a lot of experts that you can meet, maybe not a lot. There are a few experts that you can meet and know right away that they're going to be very successful as testifiers and it's worth the risk um, to, to retain them um, because they're, they're going to be very good. So, <laughs> Professor Omiji, how about you? How, how have you been uh, contacted um, to be retained as an expert witness in cases in the past? So yeah, I've, uh, as you, you know, alluded to in, in, in the beginning, um, I've been involved in certain cases where I've worked with certain law firms and I've just built a relationship with the attorneys and I've subsequently had multiple cases through the same law firm um, because of the having that wrapper with the, the attorneys and, and especially the subject matter. To me, the, the most important criteria is subject matter expertise to make sure that I'm comfortable in uh, opining on those areas that are under contention and so subsequently whether it's my research that uh, I'm doing that is tying into the matters that are going to be important in, in the litigation or that I have uh, through my other uh, consulting experiences or other experiences I've acquired knowledge of that particular area and so I'm, I'm qualified to provide uh, opinions related to that subject matter um, and that tends to be my primary way of deciding which case I'll be involved in and which I tell them, look, I'm not the right person, but I can find, I can help you find somebody else who may be more appropriate. Uh, majority of my cases, again, uh, come from just having that wrapper with attorneys and working with law firms. And there are a few law firms uh, in, in the Northeast that uh, you know, I've consistently uh, had interactions with and they've relied, if something comes up, they'll talk to me and saying, are you available? Is this something you'd be interested? I also have uh, some cases through uh, search firms, uh, you know, Sally mentioned this um, uh, in, in, in terms of them uh, knowing what my expertise are. And again, they'll come and contact me specifically. Would you be interested in this case? Um, I also tend to work for both the plaintiff side as well as the defendant side. I've never taken uh, this position that I'm only opining on one particular matter. Again, it's, it's very much ties to the subject matter itself and whether I am qualified to be the right person to opine on those matters. So I, I tend to put that part of the case a lot more weight than which party is representing or, or, you know, or try to become too focused on one entity versus the next. And obviously, um, Professor Amiji, you, you have to sort of get behind the positions that um, you're going to need to prepare and testify to at trial. How do you make that determination sort of early on before being retained about sort of whether you're comfortable with, you know, the positions that you're being asked to opine on? Right. So again, you know, early on, a lot of that information is confidential and, and won't be disclosed to me. But I, I tend to, you know, uh, obviously I go in with an open set of eyes to look sure that I'm uh, available to all the information that is being relied upon to, to make that decision that, or whatever contention that the parties have uh, uh, specifically a priori uh, taken uh, and, and whether that contentions are appropriate or not. I also tend to work with attorneys who I find actually one of the most pleasant, pleasant aspect of uh, working with certain attorneys is that they rely on expert to guide them that, yeah, you know, you are right. This may be the right way to go, but then there's also this alternative that you should look into. So I, I've had uh, some very good uh, interactions with people that sometimes they find that, yeah, you know, their alternative way of looking and still within the scope of what they are arguing. So clearly within the points that they, are, they won't like to make uh, and we don't deviate from that. 
And, and Sally, I just want to drill down a little bit on one of the points you made, which is sort of you're balancing a whole bunch of different factors, right? Prior testimony, um, expertise in a particular area. You know, is there any, would you put sort of the, um, the, the weight, you know, on the scale to tip it on any one of those factors? Like, is there one that really, without that, you, you, it's, a, it's a sort of, you know, non-starter for a particular expert? I think it's uh, um, I think it's key that um, an expert sort of understand the process in many ways um, and and understand what they're getting into um, and be responsive and um, and then there's just a certain there has to be a bar in terms of being able to explain things in a way that a lay audience can understand and um, you know, I think those, those sort of things are key. Um, it really, it depends on the case though, right? Like, um, and, and the specific issue um, in terms of, you know, whether prior testimony is going to be what's really driving the decision or, or something else. Um, it just, uh, different cases have different needs. Um, but I do, I do think sort of in terms of it being a smooth experience and um, and uh, work getting done efficiently, just having the expert be engaged and responsive and sort of understand the process and know what they're getting into can be extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. So um, we now, let's say, have our expert. We've, we've found them either through a search firm or um, through you know, doing our own independent research into the, the area and identifying individuals um, and you retain your expert um, and then sort of you're in the litigation now and you move to the next step, which is, you know, obviously uh, working with the expert to prepare expert witness reports, typically, um, which, you know, will be the um, universe of testimony that they can give down the road at trial. Um, so I want to turn to that now, which is the preparation of expert reports, because it's obviously a very um, time consuming um, and um, thoughtful process um, that involves a lot of thinking and discussions and analysis uh, on the part of both the, the lawyers working on the case as well as the experts. Um, and why don't we start with you now, Professor Amiji, I guess in your experience, sort of, let's start with... Um, you know, your general practice in working with lawyers to prepare your expert report, what have you found to be sort of the best practice to prepare an expert report? Yeah, so um, in my case, the what I find to be very useful uh, in preparing expert report is having the documentations. What are the, the documents we're relying on? So in, in for example, in, in an infringement case, whether if I'm opining specifically and the expert report focuses on non-infringement analysis, I would look at all the different evidence that supports that particular opinion. Uh, so in the typical pharmaceutical case you, uh, where you're dealing with non-infringement issues, you have to look at what is called an abbreviated new drug application, which is submitted to the FDA by the generic company. And that package has all the information about how this drug product is made and what are the differences between the drug product compared to uh, what are the patented claims and what the claim, claim language and, and the, the, how the claim is uh, teaching towards and, and how does the specification of the patent support. Uh, and so I look at the intrinsic evidence uh, from the patent, from the prosecution history and all the other, but it's really the, the entirety of the evidence that is being used. And I start from that and then I um, uh, work on uh, understanding the opinions. How are the opinions going to lay, be laid out? Uh, and then we get into the actual writing part of the of the expert report. And in that, uh, there are certain parts of the expert report, which, uh, uh, such as the legal standards, which I rely on the attorneys to provide that information. And and subsequently, my background is also, you know, I I, I draft that early on. Uh, then we get into the skeleton of the reports and start to put down exactly what are the different elements that we are going to be focusing on. And then we have very various calls or live meeting, depending uh, more so now in the COVID era, <laughs> having video conferences and WebEx. But uh, before then, it was actually more face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, and we would sit down and discuss the various aspects of those opinions and how those opinions uh, are, are uh, 
what are the supporting elements to that? One of the things that I like in expert report is basically having the citations uh, to be able to go back to those uh, documents that I relied on in making my opinions, because during the deposition, I found it incredibly helpful to have citations so that I can look at that particular line and go back to that document. So this is where I found the support for this opinion. And, and, and that's how I've been able to put uh, and work with attorneys in terms of developing expert reports. And, and again, depending uh, uh, on the case and the, and the matters that are uh, relevant in this case, you know, sometimes these expert reports can be very short. Uh, it could be, you know, 30, 40 pages, but sometimes it can be fairly long. Dep again, you know, how many patents, how many claims, um, what are, uh, whether I'm just opining on invalidity or am I just opining on, on non-infringement or am I opining on both? So we, we, we tend to have, uh, the timeline for expert report also tends to vary a lot on the substance, depending on the substance of the discussion itself. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, and um, you mentioned um, in-person meetings versus telephone calls versus Zoom meetings. And Sally, I know you've done a lot of work working on expert reports um, um, in the economics of pharmaceutical products. Um, I guess, have, what's your, been your experience as far as, you know, what's worked best for those initial meetings um, to prepare an expert report? Do you prefer to have an in-person meeting with the lawyers where you sort of hash it all out? Um, can we work in a Zoom sort of environment or, you know, video conference environment, does that work? Um, or, you know, is a telephone call enough? I personally really think that Zoom works well and, and having a video conference, it's helpful um, if you can't have the in-person meeting. And certainly, I, I would say a video conference is fairly close to an in-person meeting. You can, um, you know, see when someone's thinking something through. You can read the nuances of body language over um, video conferences like Zoom. So, um, and it's certainly cheaper, right, than flying people out to um, different locations um, to all meet in person. Um, and then in this day and age, it's certainly safer. So um, I'd be a strong advocate for Zoom meetings or WebEx meetings um, where you can share documents um, and um, and still see each other and, um, you know, get all the benefits of, as I said, um, sort of being able to read um, people's body language and understand when they're thinking about things and, and the like. So, um, so I don't think it's key to be in person. It can sometimes be helpful, but I think that, uh, one of the things this COVID-19 has taught us all, I think, is how effective video conferences, video conferencing can be. And do you find it useful to have that sort of initial discussion or Zoom call or meeting before you dig in? Like, how much, how much detail do you find to be helpful, um, you know, in formulating the opinions that go into an expert report? Um, you know, or do you like to do some of your own digging, for example, first and thinking through the issues and then have that meeting? I think it's efficient to have the a meeting first. Uh, one, just to really get on the same page in terms of scope. What, what exactly is the area of, uh, um, of the opinions that you're looking for? Um, so really sort of hammer that out and it's not, often there are several pieces to that, right? Um, now in some cases, um, you know, so a commercial success case um, with, you know, I think we've worked on a large number of those cases. We generally know what the typical analyses are um, uh, that you would look at. So you might have a meeting to discuss the data requirements uh, to conduct those analyses and the, you know, maybe there's testimony that you would hope to see from a fact witness or certain types of documents. So hashing all that out early so that those documents, you can get that support and that evidence early on, I think is very helpful, but you may not need an in-depth discussion about as I, like laying out all the opinions because it's, um, there can be some fairly standard analyses that are, are conducted to determine whether a drug was commercially successful. So it, Again, it depends, um, but um, I, I would say one thing that I think is really helpful in cases is to bring the testifying expert or at least a support firm like us on early, um, both in terms of uh, being able to talk about what the attorney's case strategy is and whether the economics match up with it. Um, and then also um, think about 
discovery and what documents do you need to request from the other side and what documents might you want to request from third parties. If, if the expert or a consulting firm is brought in after fact discovery is closed, you may find out that some critical support is just missing and, um, and that can really limit the scope of what an expert can uh, say. Yeah, and I guess we, we didn't really touch upon that um, in the first sort of topic, but the timing of selecting experts obviously is critically important. Um, and, you know, make, making sure you have your experts lined up even before litigation commences to the extent you know it's coming. And oftentimes, you know, in IP cases um, of this nature, um, you typically would know that a litigation is, is going to arise um, um, but at the very least, you know, at the moment, you know, if you're surprised by, you know, a, a complaint and you're a defendant, at the very least, you know, upon filing of the complaint, you know, you should really be thinking about identifying the, the right experts and retaining them, both to, um, you know, to have the right experts on your side, but also, you know, to think, you know, to make sure that, um, you know, somebody else doesn't retain them. If you're in, for example, a multiple party litigation, somebody else could retain them in advance of you. So I think that's a great point in terms of timing, um, you know, retaining experts early on is critical. And I think what you were saying, Sally, is working with experts early on, even before, you know, expert discovery, sort of in the fact discovery phase and making sure you're getting the right um, documents and depositions from the fact witnesses um, to establish the record that you may need um, in order to put in the the support for your expert testimony. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and in general, I think it's um, you should try to do your best to have time be on your side rather than time working against you. So, like, there's a whole host of things that can make the filing of a report easier and. Um, so from from hiring um, or retaining your experts early to getting them documents and data and deposition transcripts early to, to getting them, you know, feedback well before the expert report deadline so that all the fact checking that needs to occur to make sure the report doesn't have any errors can occur and you're not scrambling at the last minute. So, so there's a lot that can be done to smooth the whole process of filing a report and ensure that um, you know, the report's accurate and doesn't have any mistakes. Um, so, Professor Amiji, in terms of sort of lessons learned here, sort of what, you know, what's, I guess, the worst experience you've had or what's something that really concerns you when you're working with lawyers to prepare an expert report? Um, you know, what's keeping you up late at night to make sure it doesn't happen in the future? Yeah, so majority of the uh, instances that I have been uh, retained as an expert has been, you know, pleasant experience for me. There's been a few ones that sort of stand out where I felt, uh, uh, and and in some cases I actually turned them down. I didn't take the the uh, uh, the opportunity. And one particular example was uh, uh, a case uh, a few years back where uh, an attorney reached out to me and saying that they needed an expert in a subject matter that was very much in line with my expertise, my my research area, and and within the, the work that I've done in the past. However, uh, the way uh, that I, once I, I I started asking more questions, it became clear that uh, they were looking to substitute their existing expert uh, with somebody else. And that's a really difficult position uh, for me at least, and uh, maybe some other experts as well. But for me personally, I find it very difficult to step into a case midstream because, and as Ali was saying, it's really helpful to have identified the experts early on and then have them stay throughout the case. Uh, and in my case, I've been involved in, in early, even during the uh, claim construction and, and just uh, long before the actual uh, expert report phase. So in this particular matter where I was asked to step in, the expert reports were already written and they were asking to basically substitute. Now, I don't know exactly what the nature of that, why did they want substitution, but the, the idea was that, well, you will read those expert reports, you'll read the evidence, but you'll just sign off on these existing expert reports, which to me, you know, fi I find that a very challenging thing to, to, to step into. Um, 
So that's one one case that I, I think you know uh, I didn't take that and and uh, you know I, but that's something that I think most experts will agree with me that it's a difficult situation to get into um, when you are basically relying on somebody else's opinion and you're sort of just moving along and and opine, and then taking that as your own. Um, the other times that I've been involved. Um, where obviously I think one of the key cases with expert is, is uh, potentially the Daubert motion to try to discredit the, uh, the experts during trial. And uh, you know, I, thankfully in my case, I have not had any of these, but I had one case where uh, I was asked to opine on matter, which there was also another expert that was opining on it. And so at the trial phase, the judge said, no, you only have, you can only have one expert opine on one area. So you cannot have two. And, and he basically asked that my opinions in that case should not be heard at trial, only have one expert. So those are some of the instances where I felt, you know, it could be done a little bit better, uh, just having that conversation to see, you know, how can you best utilize an expert? Uh, and, and on those two cases, to me, you know, um, the, the first one, I didn't take it. The second one, I was involved. I did provide the opinion, but they were not counted during trials. Sally, what about you? What, what um, keeps you up at night when you're working to prepare an expert witness report? <laughs> sure. Um, I get very nervous when the lead par uh, partner on the case or in-house counsel have not reviewed a draft of the report and you're getting close to the deadline. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's when you can get really substantive edits right before you're supposed to file um, and uh, finding support for those. So you may suddenly you may see like, can you offer this opinion, but there's no support or if they provide support, you haven't had a chance to think about like everything else you've seen and whether it's consistent. Um, so it just, uh, that, that makes me very nervous. The other thing that is really rare actually is when, um, Council uh, uh, tries to push the expert's opinion um, further than he should really go. Um, he or she should really go. So um, you do not want your expert to be out on a limb. Um, and um, most uh, attorneys that I've worked with are firm believers of that, and they don't want their experts to stretch, and they want all the opinions to be fully supported and defensible. Um, but every once in a while, um, sometimes when it's a tougher case, you, you get um, attorneys who will try to per push an expert to say something that they really shouldn't be saying. And I certainly view one of my roles as protecting the expert from that kind of pressure and pushing back um, and uh, explaining to the expert why, who may be a little naive in terms of why it's potentially problematic and explaining why it's problematic and that, um, he or she should push back. Um, so I think that that, that can be um, that can create a lot of tension. Um, uh, but it, as I said, it's very rare. Most uh, clients are uh, do not um, do not want the experts out on them. Yeah, yeah. Of course, credibility is obviously one of the key key factors of of. Uh, um, both, you know, identifying an expert and presenting their testimony at trial. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the, you know, the next topic about depositions. But I will tell you from my perspective as, a, you know, working with experts, what keeps me up at night when we're working on expert reports is when um, I don't get that sort of feedback from the witness promptly enough um, on drafts that are going back and forth and ideas. And, you know, I think... Um, one of you mentioned that sort of, and I think it may have been you, um, Sally, about how, um, you know, having the uh, expert have availability and understanding the scope of the work is really critical because um, you need to have somebody who's going to be responsive and making sure, you know, similarly to not having the senior partner or the, um, you know, client sort of wait to, sort of the eve of the report being due to weigh in on it. Um, you also want to make sure the expert has, doesn't do the same thing and has really sort of vetted the ideas and the arguments and um, identified the right material and, and sources um, because, you know, when, once that's been served, you know, that's it. Right. And, and so, you know, oftentimes, um, 
you know, you don't want to be in a position where sort of the last minute, you know, somebody raises a new reference or a new argument or a new position, and then, you know, you're scrambling to get it done. So um, I would say having clear guidance and expectations laid out at the very beginning with interim deadlines, while obvious and sticking to those deadlines is, is crucial um, for ensuring, you know, a really well thought out expert report. Um, why don't we turn now to depositions? Um, and preparing for a deposition, uh, which obviously takes a lot of time, um, as you all know. Um, and, um, you know, as that can happen in many different forms, in-person meetings, Zoom calls, telephone calls, um, you know, lots of different sort of ways that I'm sure you've seen different lawyers approach it different ways. Um, I guess let's start, I'm most interested in hearing from both of you to begin with, with the sort of on the topic of, you know, having seen a number of different lawyers and law firms work with the expert witness to prepare them for deposition. What have you sort of taken as sort of the best practice um, from your perspective to, you know, I guess, starting with you, Professor Amiji, how, when have you felt most prepared going into the deposition? Um, and what did the lawyers do to help you feel that way? Yeah, so I think uh, I go back to the expert reports uh, or, you know, whether it's one report or, or multiple reports, but I really think that uh, in my preparation for deposition really starts at the expert report phase. I, I want to make sure that I understand the expert report, I understand my opinions, where are those opinions grounded, on what type of evidence did I rely on? And subsequently, uh, when I even start preparing for the deposition, I go back to the expert. I look at also the the, uh, the counter expert report from the experts on the other side to make sure that how our opinions differ, what are some of the areas uh, when they, where they are different, what are the basis for those differences and how I can then make my uh, opinion stronger based on evidence that I've relied on uh, in order to make sure that at that position, you know, I'm able to uh, defend my opinions appropriately and, and, and uh, certainly rely on that evidence to, to continue to, to, to bolster the confidence that I'm uh, on the right place uh, with my uh, whatever I opined on. So I, I start from the expert reports. I, I also look at other evidence, other supporting evidence, especially um, the evidence that's been relied by the other party uh, and their experts uh, in trying to, especially when they've come up with a rebuttal report, which uh, tries to uh, counter some of my opinions. So those have been places where I, my initial analysis starts. And then we get into the actual um, preparation for the deposition. And the place, and to come to your question, the, the thing that helps me tremendously uh, Previously, when I first, was first starting as an expert witness, I certainly it helped me tremendously just to understand the nature of the deposition and being able to um, uh, to find you know what are some of the places where you can potentially be trapped into. But now, as I've gotten a little bit more used to the process itself, uh, I find that you know it still helps me, but it's not as important. What I find. Uh, in, uh, and as a faculty member, I think one of the key learning lessons that I learned um, in, in being an expert witness versus a professor is always, this is a confrontational exercise. You know, when you're a professor, your your word is basically gospel and, and nobody argues that what you are saying is right or wrong. Um, and, and that took me a while uh, just to get into that mindset that everything is challenged here. Every opinion is challenged and you should be able to, every time you make an opinion, you have to back it up with with uh, real evidence and, and and provide support for that um, so in coming to that preparation part uh, that's where I my questions I tend to be in, in, in engaging with the attorneys um, it's not just you know here is how your expert report is laid out and this is what we are discussing and, and here are the opinions and in what we happens in, in my preparation especially is we tend to have a lot of back and forth. So I have more questions for them than they have of me. And we tend to have a lot of back and forth uh, as far as how, you know, uh, I just want to make sure that this is the correct way of analyzing this, uh, that I'm not saying anything. Uh, the other thing that I find also that in, in many cases that I've been involved in, uh, there are multiple other experts. 
And one of the key things that uh, attorneys on the other side will do is they're trying to use one expert to discredit another expert, although your opinion, and, and unfortunately you are not, you know, you don't have, you're not privy to the expert reports of the other experts. So you are relying on, and they'll come up with a question. If you're opining on infringement, they'll ask something on validity and, and you, you know, it can trip you up uh, during the deposition. So keeping your, uh, the the expert reports and and being able to be solidly grounded in your opinion and and when it comes to questions like that are outside of your scope of your work and you can easily say no this is not what i was asked to do i have absolutely no knowledge you know or if a paper is thrown at you you can you need to say look i i need to read this i have to understand the nature of this before i can answer uh, those are the kinds of things that i've as time has progressed i've learned a lot of those ways to 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 counter some of those things but i think the best practices for me has been um that rely on the evidence that you have used for your expert report make sure that you understand where your opinions came from and then ask questions don't just take information from, from the attorneys, but ask more and more questions uh, so that you're completely clear about what you're you know, getting into and, and, and how you're best uh, able to answer that. And, and uh, as I said before, in my expert report, I rely a lot on citations and those citations have been you know, a blessing for me just looking at uh, the documents. And let me just drill down on one issue in particular, Professor Amiji, which is I know a lot of different experts have different views on how useful it is to do mock Q&A in the prep sessions for depositions. Do you find it helpful? I, I do. Um, I actually, especially I find it helpful uh, when the, uh, you know, there is a person who is an aggressive attorney and uh, he or she is able to uh, really uh, dig deep into and, and find those areas of contention between the parties and be able to then say, okay, what are you relying on in this evidence? Where are you coming from? And it's not just some anecdotal or something that you think is right. There's actually a solid evidence that you're relying on. Uh, and I think that I find it very helpful um, and because uh, it, it just puts me into that mindset of being in the room with the opposing party's attorney and being able to then answer the question. So I, I actually find that in the, my usually my prep takes about, depend again on the, on the scope of my involvement in the case between a day to maybe a day and a half. And I find that the second day when I'm working with attorneys, uh, you know, having a prep session with them where we do this mock uh, really uh, is, is quite uh, helpful. And, and sometimes it, it helps me just iron out my opinions and, and uh, in many ways, even the transcripts comes out a little bit better once you have had that mock. Mm -hmm. What about you, Sally? Um, sort of what have you seen to work well um, with uh, that lawyers have done to prepare witnesses for deposition, expert witnesses that is? Sure, so I agree um, with Dr. Meiji that um, mock questions can be very helpful, especially for um, sort of tricky points um, uh, and, um, you know, having a plan as to, you know, being able to express why your opinion is right despite something that they're showing you um, and practicing that, I think can be extremely helpful. Um, also, I think for newer experts, just uh, understanding sort of the types of, like the style of questioning that they may face, um, practicing pausing and thinking through the answer before starting to talk can be really helpful. Um, so just some practice along those lines can be uh, really good for particularly a newer expert. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, so Cornerstone I think views it as our role to really um, help the expert get up to speed on the details of their, of what, what they've done. You know, they knew it when they filed the report and have discussed it multiple times, but it may be a month or two months later and tremendous amount of data and research went into their reports to just getting them up to speed on that. And we, um, we cite everything in our reports, right? Um, so we, and we provide an electronic backup binder that has the report with links to every single source document so that they can do a lot of self-study as well. But that, so that's sort of our role. And then I think we really view the attorney's role as more higher level strategy. Where are the pain points for the other side? And therefore where, is the expert likely to see a lot of questions and um, 
understanding sort of what their goal may be in terms of developing a record which could help exclude a portion of the opinions and what the standards are for exclusion and just helping the expert really understand all of that. Um, and then I think also just helping experts understand that it's okay to concede some points, right? Like don't fight everything. You look uh, combative and like an advocate if you can't even sort of acknowledge that, yeah, this is, you're right. This is, <laughs> I, I concede that point. It doesn't necessarily mean that my opinion is wrong, but you know that, um, you know, keeping in mind sort of how you're generally on video, um, certainly getting recorded, right? Like, um, that you're, you know, that how you handle questions and you're, you're being combative can actually reduce your credibility. Yeah, on that, on that point, Sally, I'm going to share now a war story that I've had and <laughs> deposing an, an expert witness, which is because it, it highlights sort of that point of don't be combative um, on every single issue um, because it really undermines your credibility. I had ta was taking the deposition of an expert once um, and I had discovered in the course of preparation that um, the expert report he had served was largely copied and pasted from contentions that lawyers had prepared and served several months before he was involved in the case. Um, and, you know, in the course of the deposition early on, I, I asked, you know, very, a very standard question, which is, you know, what did you do to prepare the report? And um, did you, you know, write the report, right? Which, you know, are, are typical questions that you would ask in a deposition. And the, the expert, I think, out of who knows why, but sort of dug in and said, yes, I wrote the whole thing myself. And when I pressed him on it, he said, yes, I took, you know, pencil to paper and, you know, wrote every last word of this expert witness report. Um, and sort of kudos to my associate who had sort of, you know, realized that 90% of this was earlier contentions that the lawyers wrote and that I had established with the expert he had never seen those contentions before when we got to the point where I was showing him following that testimony paragraph by paragraph that each paragraph had been lifted from what the lawyers wrote in a document that he had never seen before it became you know very un uncomfortable <laughs> for him to say the least so um you know I guess that's that's something not to do which is to sort of do not um sort of prepare your witness to fight on every single issue. Um, it's critically important that they know exactly, you know, what are the issues that you care about and they care about and they need to really focus on and what are issues that, you know, they should, you know, obviously, um, you know, be free to give up. You know, there are some things that experts have to give up at a deposition um, and, you know, first and foremost, you want your expert to tell the truth, right? And that's something that I tell my experts every time we start a prep session is, you know, rule number one is always tell the truth. Um, you know, no matter what the question is, you know, you answer truthfully, you know, we will figure out whether those positions and how we work with those positions in the context of the case. But I do not want you to ever stretch the truth or lie about, you know, in response to a question because you know you're under oath and you're here to testify truthfully and provide truthful testimony to the court so one thing to potentially remind experts of though because i think people have a natural tendency to want to be helpful is, is that you don't need to be helpful <laughs> to, to, to the other side like if they ask a bad question you don't need to uh sort of right. talk, oh, the better question is this and here's the answer to it you know answer the question asked and um, and you don't need to explain more than necessary, and um, you know. So, I think I mean, the other, another thing about you know this uh, that I found is also in, in addition to being just short and sweet and answering only the question that's asked. Uh, is uh, and this is especially true of a faculty member, which is you know common to us. We tend to go into this hyperbole and start to add a lot of things. And I think that one one of the lessons that I've learned uh, based on these mock questions, as well as preparation with attorneys, is um, how to make sure that you are within points. You know, be truthful, um, stick to what you know. Don't try to amplify on, if you don't know something, just say, I don't know, I, I, I 
you know, this is the first time I'm hearing about this. I need to know a little bit more about it before I can opine on it. But do not take a position, especially on an unknown, uh, on a material that you are not familiar with, and just try to, you know, sort of go in, in tangent. It's, it's that classic human flaw that is in all of us of not wanting to concede that <laughs> there's something that you may not know, right? Uh, but it's so important to, to sort of, you know, accept that and, 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 and concede what, you know, that something's outside your expertise or outside your knowledge or something that you may need to think some more about, right? Because um, it also could provide you an opportunity to further develop an opinion down the road on that issue um, once you've given some more thoughtful, you know, uh, attention to it. So. Absolutely. Let's turn now to um, trial um, and preparing for trial testimony. Um, and uh, let's, you know, we don't have any, let me just check. There are no questions yet, so I'm just going to continue on until 1 o'clock, um, unless I see a question pop up. But t let's talk about um, trial testimony. What, what have you found to be particularly helpful from your perspective in, in testifying at trial, um, Professor Amiji? So, um, again, you know, uh, just being able to be very comfortable with the, the materials, uh, again, going back to the deposition, looking at deposition transcript to be able to understand exactly some of the opinions that are provided. Uh, and that, you know, it's, it's a continuum. It starts from uh, being able to uh, wor start working with attorneys all, all throughout the actual uh, writing of the expert reports to deposition to, to trial. And, and that continuum, in some ways, actually sharpens the opinion in, in my case, uh, because part of it is just, uh, you know, as we were talking about in, in the expert report case, we have we have everything we are putting everything into the expert reports but as we get towards trial a lot of those uh, in patent litigation especially starts to become more streamlined and more, the the claims may be narrowed uh, the opinion starts to become a little bit more focused you know, some of this depends again on the courts and, and whether the time allowed for trials may be very short. And so a lot of the opinions and a lot of the testimony has to be uh, streamlined. So we get to, to the, the trial phase and, and the focus becomes a lot more on those matter that is going to be in front of the court uh, and, and how to uh, present that. Um, in my case, uh, so in addition to just preparing for trial, I've also been involved uh, in, in almost all cases which has gone to trial on development of the audio, the, the visual aids and, and other uh, material, especially because of the scientific nature and, and trying to explain uh, to the court. Uh, and, and in my case, the trial, so I've been on six trials and one of those trials was a jury trial, but the other five have been bench trials. And the jury trial, especially, we because of the just the composition of the jury, we wanted to make sure that we are providing those visual aids uh, that help the jury understand uh, and these are complicated scientific cases. So the basics of um, getting uh, that information to the jurors uh, was very important and uh, making sure the juror understood the, the nature of the case, the, the materials that we were presenting. Uh, and so the audiovisuals were critical and I, I was involved in that as well. And then my own preparation really, um, I think, it, uh, it just working with the attorneys, uh, uh, streamlining these opinions, making sure that we are completely focused on, and then we would go through uh, a couple of different mock uh, questions uh, for the direct testimony as well as have uh, a, a cross examination. I find the cross actually to be really really helpful uh, when you, especially with an attorney who can uh, bring out uh, some of these differences of why these opinions are different and where are you relying on in order to make your opinion. So that's how I prepared for trial. And have you, have you ever been, um, you know, surprised on cross-examination? <laughs> Not surprised. Um, you know, I, I find that different uh, attorneys have different styles uh, of crossing. And some of the more effective attorneys are those who have a pleasant smile and are able to have a very engaging communication. Uh, I actually find those attorneys who, you know, bang on the, table and become very uh, aggressive in, in trial to be, uh, you know, to at least in, in my case, I, I tend to, uh, you know, not get as much uh, uh, frazzled by them. I tend to always look at the, the, the judge rather than looking at the attorney's face. And just that distraction helps me to answer the question and not get too, you know, carried away by the personalities. But I've seen that, you know, sometimes the attorneys get too much into this personality issue rather than the substance of the case. Mm -hmm. 
What about you, Sally? Um, what have you seen to be an effective way um, to prepare a witness for an expert witness for trial? And um, in particular, I know you've worked closely with the testifying experts to prepare their demonstratives. I guess what are some do's and don'ts in making sure the demonstratives really come out well and uh, present the testimony to the judge or the jury? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think simple is always better. Um, I, you know, you can have a tendency to just shove as much information as possible onto onto a slide, and um, and it's always a better idea to just simplify it as as much as possible. I, I think, um, uh, and I think the demonstratives um, should really help the expert tell their story and to give them sort of guideposts as to where they are in their in their direct testimony and um, you know help in many ways it's sort of a reminder of the things that they want to say um, rather than um, sort of spelling it out all out on the page. Um, so I'd say those things are key. And I, I completely agree with Professor Meiji that like practice makes perfect, right? So practicing your direct um, but also practicing cross has been very helpful. Another key thing I think for, for us we found is allowing the expert to the extent it's possible to um, sit in court and hear the testimony of other witnesses. Um, the economists, particularly in IP litigation, I think can be a little bit separated from the issues. Um, you know, often, I would say almost always right is the science that is the, really the key issue, um, not the economics. Um, but hearing Hearing the the um, the testimony and the nuances and the context, I think, can really help the economist shape their testimony, understand how their testimony fits, allow them to build on that story that's being told. Um, and if they get sort of off the wall, cross exam questions, um, just having that context, I think, can help them respond um, in a more meaningful and effective way. Um, so if it's possible for the for the economists to sit in on, on the testimony of other witnesses, I would um, strongly encourage that. Yeah, and let me echo, I think if it's possible for even the technical experts, which it sometimes is if they're rebuttal witnesses to hear you know, the, the, the other, you know, their opposing expert testify, it really um, can sometimes lead to sort of additional um, revisions to the way that they present their testimony, um, especially if there's maybe a day between the two testifying experts, because um, you know, I found um, experts are invaluable in being able to say, wait a second, my, I know my colleague's wrong about X, Y, and Z, and there's a very easy explanation that I can sort of give in one, in an answer to one question to the judge that's going to really sort of undermine the whole basis of what he just, you know, testified to or she just testified to. Um, and oftentimes that comes out, you know, from, you know, the expert witness being in the courtroom and observing, um, you know, their colleague testify um, on the other side on a particular issue. Um, and also, I think, you know, to your point, Sally, sometimes can bring, you know, it sort of sort of keeps, you know, the expert honest in the sense that if you have, you know, your colleagues there in the audience, um, you know, who are ready and able to, you know, um, really call you out on anything that you've misstated, um, you may be less inclined, um, even if you had such an inclination as an expert witness to sort of stretch a position or an argument. Um, so I, there's tremendous value in that. And, and the practice element I would add too is, is really, I found, you know, practice, there's no substitute for practicing the Q and A, especially because, you know, when it actually becomes executed, it's not you, you as a lawyer from the lawyer's perspective, I might not get the answer that we had originally scripted out in response to a question. I need to be able to know what question do I ask next to get, you know, the professor who's now the expert witness on the stand to give that, that answer that we had, you know, discussed or that, that position. And sometimes, you, you know, you on the fly will add a few questions here or there because you see, you know, the, the judge or the jury's paying particular attention to an issue. Uh, so you might want to sort of reemphasize a point or provide a little more explanation than you originally had. And the only way that you can sort of have tremendous comfort to pull that off in a way that's going to be seamless at trial is really knowing, you know, we're, 
becoming friends with your expert, know them, sort of knowing exactly what they're going to say. Um, and, and they know sort of what you're getting at and sort of being on the same page. It, it really is remarkable how at the end of all of this prep, you can sort of, you know, you're on the same mindset with an individual such that, um, you know, you can connect, um, you know, when they're on the stand and you're asking the question. Um, we do have a question from the audience here that I, I should take. We only have a minute left. Um, and the question is on how you become an expert witness. Do you need to register? Or is there a particular certification process? Um, which there isn't. Um, you do have to be qualified. So when you are offered um, to testify in court, um, you know, the, the attorney has to establish by asking you questions through voir dire that will show that, you know, you are, in fact, an expert in this particular topic that you intend to testify on. And there can be challenges to that, either, you know, um, to the reliability of your opinions in advance through like a, a Daubert motion um, or at trial, you know, the opposing counsel could sort of raise an issue as to the scope of the testimony and say, you know, while, for example, Professor Amiji is an expert in this topic, he's not an expert in these other two topics, which he, you know, the lawyer just said he's going to testify about. And so don't qualify him. Um, and the judge obviously makes determinations on, you know, whether the expert is qualified and accepted into the court um, as an expert before the expert can then offer opinions um, in, in the form of testimony to um, either the judge or the jury as part of the record. But there's no, to my knowledge, there's no, um, you know, other certification process other than having the right criteria. And in fact, you know, you can have, depending on the, the subject matter of the case, it really, it really depends. Like in a mechanical case, you know, the expert witness could be, um, you know, somebody who just has a lot of experience in a particular device. Um, they may not need to have an advanced degree necessarily um, in that particular space. So it really depends on the subject matter. Um, um, looks like we have um, one more question, which, um, you know, is, is a great question. Let's take it. Um, so it's how do experts establish their fee? Um, and that's an uh, interesting question. Um, Professor Amiji, what do you, how do you sort of set your fees? Yeah, so um, again, I look at my peers, uh, and, and some of that information also is, is there in the expert reports. So I, I have based uh, my fees, my hourly rate uh, on, on people who are at the similar caliber uh, of uh, academic uh, uh, titles or uh, experiences in my case, you know, I've been in, in the pharmaceutical formulation area for the past 27 years. Uh, and so I look at people who are in that area and who have been doing uh, expert witness and what are their fees and then, you know, sort of match that. Uh, that's, that's how I've, I've come to the, the number that I have right now. And then every time, you know, obviously with more experience and, and uh, as time progresses, uh, you know, there is that incremental uh, differential per year or per number of cases that uh, that's applied as well um, but that that's that's you know it's a standard hourly fee and and it's it's simply based on looking at what the peers are, are also charging yeah Sally anything else to add on that point yeah I think that that's right we're often asked by experts particularly newer experts um, you know what they what would be an appropriate fee and um, we are sort of looking around at what other experts charge and then making adjustments for experience and for academic credentials th things along um, along those lines um, so. on the issue of fees I would just close with um, you know from my perspective one other sort of practic practice tip which is you know payment and um, you know, it's very important to work out with your expert early on sort of expectations about, you know, how often they're going to bill you or your client for their time on the case, um, you know, how they're going to get paid, how quickly they're going to get paid. Oftentimes relationships can go sour um, between, um, you know, lawyers and experts or experts and clients um, because on the issue of payment and delayed payment um, and, you never want that to sort of get in the way of your, your litigation or your, your case. And so having, I think, very clear guidance and expectations up front and then sticking to them, um, you know, as lawyers, you know, you know, ensuring that your, you know, experts get paid in a timely manner and, or that your clients can, you know, reimburse your experts in a timely manner is of critical importance. So, um, 
you know, that's a more of a, a practice tip on sort of the mechanics of working with experts, but I assume you both agree with that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think, you know, and in my case, yeah, uh, you know, I usually bill at the end of the month uh, based on the number of hours that I've uh, worked on the case and generally, you know, with a few exceptions, but generally I would say 90% of, of the attorneys and, and law firms that I worked with are very, very compliant in payments and it's been a wonderful experience. Yeah. And I would just say um, certainly like the logistics of payment and timely payment, we always appreciate timely payment. Um, but um, also just a lot of communication around what fee expectations are going to be. So there's no surprises. Um, it can be very hard on an initial, like when you're just getting started to understand how much it's going to cost to, you know, and how much time it's going to take to complete an analysis, um, particularly for some of the really complex data analysis that we end up doing. So you might provide an initial fee estimate that's way just ends up being way off and um, just having a lot of communication about, you know, updating those fee estimates and why they're being updated and talking about scope if the fees are not palatable, like can we reduce scope in some way um, is, is key, I think, to maintaining a, a positive relationship. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you both. Um, for your time um, and your participation in the panel. Um, and feel free, um, you know, any of the attendees, feel free to reach out to, to any of us with follow-up questions. You can find um, Professor Armiji and Dr. Woodhouse online, um, and as well as me. I'm happy to answer questions offline if you have more questions on best practices for working with experts. And thank you for taking uh, a little bit over an hour of this glorious day to uh, listen in with us. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.